Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's Team Panel Beater here this morning, myself, Panel Beater, and in the studio with me, I've got Dr. Sharma, Dr. Dilemma, and Dr. Neo. Morning, one and all. Good morning. Good morning. Frosty morning. Yeah, but it's Frosty tr- and foggy. in true autumnal spirits, it's nice and cold, and it's going to be a, a, a balmy 20 degrees later on. Is ba- it? Balmy 20. You didn't know you were on the weather channel here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, how's your health and well-being, everyone? All good? Mm. I'm trying to get as much sunlight as possible. Uh, you know, as we approach, uh, what's it called again? The, the winter solstice. solstice. Yes, winter the solstice. sun setting earlier and earlier. Uh, any chance I get, I'm getting out there in the sun. But yep. yeah, got to grab the last remaining bits. Vitamin D. Storing it up like a bear for winter. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we, probably there'll inevitably be um, articles all over the, the media about vitamin D deficiency again, and it's about that time again, isn't it? Yeah, you know, and you know, uh, we're we're going to dedicate. I'm going to call it now. We're going to dedicate an entire episode to vitamin (laughs) D. Uh, The the headline is, of course, it's nowhere near as important and useful as you think. And I know it's going to shock a lot of people, but isn't it? No. That, you heard it here first. Controversial. Well, the chemists will, um, will, hate, you, will hate you for that, for that comment, especially with the, uh, the new rapid test kits that are popping up on the shelves. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, what do you make of those? I Look, in, in true, true spirits, I intellectually, I'm like, oh, this is a bit of a scam, but really want to do one, like just for the fun of it. Like, I think it's just attracting me to like, Shiny new things that will that will be fun to play with. Did I miss some news? Like, why haven't these testing kits been as obvious in the past? Is has there been a change in? Well, so, so I, I'm aware that these tests, and just to be clear, what we're talking about are, are point of care tests that patients can people can do and buy <laughs> at, at supermarkets. We're talking about things like vitamin D, uh, iron. I think it's something else uh, from memory. Uh, and these have been available in the UK for quite some time in supermarkets. Uh, that they just hadn't made across here, and I imagine it's because sellers just weren't really sure how people the Australian market is going to react. But of course, since COVID and the, the whole concept of rapid tests and people mm. doing the tests themselves, mm. there would clearly be some sort of appetite for it. We'll see what what the level of uptake is here, of course. But with the rising cost of healthcare, you know, anyone who's previously been curious about these things, I'm. You know, might be prone to buying one of those. How accurate it's going to be, how useful it's going yeah. to be, is it going to cause benefits or harms? That remains to be seen. I'm pretty sceptical myself, of course. Well, if you had a patient come into your GP practice and say, well, I've had this rapid test so that I'm vitamin D deficient, would you trust the test and, or would you... Repeat it. Would you repeat uh, well, it? Well, if they said vitamin D was low, um, I'd, I'd believe it. But mm. that's because if someone just said, hey, I think my vitamin D is low in Melbourne, you're almost always... Correct, that's and that's I'm not just being kind of cute here. That, that's a whole concept called the pretest probability, yeah. right? And so there, there are layers of statistical meanings to be decoded behind these tests that I don't really yeah. think we, have, we can expect consumers to understand. But um, but the, but the big point being, of course, I think something like vitamin D, it's probably not going to cause a lot of harm mm. uh, either way. When we start to get into things like iron, 
it's a bit of an issue there, right? Iron, uh, iron deficiency can cause anemia, can be due to quite sinister causes yeah. such mm. as bowel cancers, etc. And the mode at which people go, oh, I'm fine or oh, I'm not fine, mm. either way, you can miss something or trigger off a cascade of testing. It's a bit of a rabbit's hole. So now these tests are out in the wild. Would best behaviour for a consumer like myself that doctors would like to see would be, okay, I'm, I'm walking down... Um, chemist warehouse aisle, I pick myself up a, a tester and I test it and I find some kind of deficiency mm. according to that test. Mm. And so instead of me then self-diagnosing and then going and buying a bottle of, um, of Blackmore's vitamins or whatever it is, um, the next step should be to go to the GP. Absolutely that's, that's should the go, yeah. go to the GP um, because, well, for starters, we don't know what the real life mm. Uh, accuracy of these tests and I don't mean the ones that are quoted in in their literature um, but also yeah the, the action you take is not as simple as I'll just replenish uh, whatever I'm deficient in yeah. uh, it becomes quite important to see why it is that you yeah. are deficient in something yeah. uh, causes can be often be sinister the tests uh, won't ever say that will they the no. tests won't ever have that capacity not at all yeah no. mm. Speaking of pharmacists, they got a bit toey during uh, last week yes. or so. Yes, that's right. So uh, I had this interesting uh, interaction with my chemist, actually. So I went in to grab some medications and I said, um, oh, can I get a couple of months supply? <laughs> um, you know, no, noting that, of course, the legislation will, will be changing in a, in a few months' time. I thought, well, let's just test the waters a bit. He's a lovely guy, my chemist. He was... Uh, he wasn't so happy, uh, I think, but he did, did kind of oblige. But, mm. yeah, I, it has... Pharmacists are pretty pretty upset. Pretty upset. So and the change is going from a one month supply to a two month supply. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And so the not idea for all be- medications, not for all medications, but for a number of PBS listed. Yeah, for credit. But the GPs are quite happy about this, right? Absolutely. Look, we've, if anything, we've been wanting this for quite some time, and I think particularly because a lot of the the, the lobbying. To, for pharmacists to, to start to do a lot of the work the GPs are is based around the fact that we want to make things more accessible. Yeah, so, yeah. of course, when the, the pharmacy uh, lobby has been pitching that line for a while, they couldn't really say no on that basis. But the, I think the argument they've been making is that there's going to be medicine shortages, uh, of course, which, frankly, I don't really think anyone's been able to substantiate in a good yeah, I, way why that would occur in the long term, mm. especially when there's lots of notice being given. Um, but you know, can also imagine how it might harm their business as, as just retailers where yeah. so much incidental purchasing because mm, when yeah. you walk into a store. Yeah. What do you guys think? Is it also the dispensing fee that is paid <clears throat> with every... So not just the incidental purchases that you might make at the chemist, um, but the actual... Yeah, you can direct your The cynicism. dispensing fee that um, mm. uh, ph- pharmacists are paid and the pharmacy recoups from mm. every every script refill, which I suppose is going to be happening only every second, every but half as frequently now. You're also right. Like Pharmacists aren't, as much as they are a vital part of our healthcare system, they're also making a very substantial amount of their money from things like vitamins and over-the-counter uh, prescriptions that are available. Jelly beans at point of sale, they must make a killing off the jelly well, beans at point of sale. Yeah, there's another little bit of jelly beans on the road. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's a closed industry, right? Yeah. In terms of um, getting... Into, into a pharmacist, yeah. you have to be a pharmacist. Yeah. Pharmacy, you have to be a pharmacist. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Yeah, and also do just want to acknowledge here the, the difficulty for a lot of people in the healthcare in the pharmacy field. There is this kind of natural kind of divergence of incentives for pharmacy mm. owners 
versus pharmacists. Mm. Pharmacists who are incredibly capable, highly educated, oh, sure, sure. Um, uh, versus the incentives that maybe come from pharmacy owners. It's all not quite the same. So I can see even within the pharmacy community, there's a divergence mm. of, of views. Um, but yeah, it's a it's an interesting time. Let's just say that for pharmacies, general practice, and healthcare in general. Um, yeah, of course, things I think are going to be completely transformed in the next five years. We just don't know which direction they're going to go. And I think this is just one of the first steps. And that's a good point. Definitely not to speak down pharmacists in any way, yeah. shape or form. Like yeah. I've had, uh, you know, pharmacists, they always carry this purple pen. And whenever I see a purple pen on one of my med charts, uh, I know that I've done something wrong. But I know that <laughs> yeah. the pharmacist <laughs> has, has, has saved me from, <laughs> from it being an issue. Many times Wealth of knowledge, really. Um, yeah. As you alluded to uh, there, Dr. Dilemma, um, part of that initiative is to save some money on the on the um, uh, dispensing. And at the tail end of the show, we will turn our mind to some of the news around the um, the health budget. Before we get there, we've got a couple of guests, though. We do. We've got two guests in the studio today. A very very exciting. Um... <laughs> First of all, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Chris Eldridge uh, from the Childhood Dementia Initiative to speak about all things childhood dementia, which is a, two words that uh, should never go together. Mm. And uh, in the latter part of the show, we're going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Josh, Josh Ozawicki uh, about Streptococcus A um, um, bacterium and the, uh, the race to develop uh, an effective vaccine against uh, this really devastating pathogen. We know Josh by another name, don't we, yes, Dr. Sharma? Yes, we do. He used to share this desk, didn't he? He did. Shall we invoke his name? Yes, we shall. Hawkeye. 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 Yeah, so we welcome <laughs> back to the studio Hawkeye. Um, long-term listeners will definitely remember Hawkeye. I can't remember the last time he was on the show. It was, I think it was pre-plague. Yeah, it really was. Uh, I have fond memories of his uh, rich baritone yeah, gracing right. this studio, uh, and uh, yet again, I'm feeling know. a little bit insecure over here. I feel like I've taken the seat. Uh, you're, you're the baritone. Yeah. Yeah. That was his seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it'd be great to have uh, Hawkeye back in uh, back in the studio. He's been a very busy man. Yeah. in the last few years. Yeah, he has. Looking forward to hearing getting an update on that front as well. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Dr Chris Elvidge has joined us here in the studio this morning. We're very excited for our, our discussion with Dr Elvidge. So Dr Chris has been working with rare disease patient organisations since 2008 with the goal of accelerating the development of much-needed treatments. She's currently the Head of Research at the Childhood Dementia Initiative, an organisation that was founded in 2020 to drive system change to transform outcomes for children with dementia. Christina completed her PhD in molecular biology at the University of Western Australia and her postdoc work at the University of Oxford and she joins us in the studio this morning. Welcome to Radiotherapy, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So, of course, two words that should never go together are childhood and dementia. Um, and as I've read from the uh, your organisation's website, there's um, more than 70 genetic conditions that can cause dementia in childhood. Um, and it's it's a sadly much more common than, well, I firstly anticipated. One in every around 2,800 children that are born will have a condition that can cause childhood dementia, which is an incidence that's quite similar to things that are probably much more commonly heard of, such as cystic fibrosis. And it causes a similar number of deaths each year to that of childhood cancers. 
and most of these children, unfortunately, will pass away before they reach their adulthood years. So, Dr. Dr. Elvidge, um, could you tell us what's the overarching purpose of the organisation, which is a relatively new one, and what does a typical day in your role as the head of research look like? Yeah, thanks, Emma. Um, so, uh, we really, our first job really is to raise awareness because uh, uh, your your reaction to hearing about childhood dementia is is very common. Um, most people have have never heard of childhood dementia, um, and these conditions have been around f- forever. Um, but uh, we are the first organisation in the world to bring them all together under one umbrella using the same language to describe them. Um, And we have done research with families and they've said that they found using this very simple language that people understand is really helpful for them um, so they can be understood in their communities and with allied health professionals and people just get it straight away. They can understand what what they might be going through. Um, So we're working to um, understand all the conditions that fall under the childhood dementia umbrella and um, their impact and gather all that evidence so we can raise awareness. Um, we really need to make sure that childhood dementia is in, included in health policy mm-hmm. and and then th- improve care and, and support for these families, which at the moment is um, really inadequate. And, um, and my role is around the development of therapies, which are, are very desperately needed. Mm-hmm. As you said, most of these children don't live um, to ad- adulthood. Um, so we're bringing the researchers together, um, trying to get greater efficiencies by um, working across conditions and um, advocating for more research funding as well. Mm. Chris, when you use the term childhood dementia, what, what do you actually mean by that? I mean, I think a lot of our listeners will know what adult onset dementia is and we've had a few episodes on that. But what's the actual typical patient with childhood dementia look like? So the definition of dementia is progressive cognitive decline um, and that applies to adults and children. So the children have that loss of um, cognitive ability and loss of skills and this can start um, from infancy um, to adolescence and anywhere in between and... um, I guess what's different is that they're losing skills and abilities that they've only just learnt. Um, they're, le- they're losing their speech, their, their, the ability to play, um, their, their walking, they're able to, in the earliest cases, um, being able to sit up, for example. Um, so they will have had the skill and then they lose it. So, and that distinguishes it from a developmental issue. It's quite, it's quite complicated because there's um, often neurodevelopmental problems happening at the same time as the um, decline. So um, it can be quite mixed depending on which condition you're talking about and, and the, the severity in that individual child. That must make diagnosis in itself a challenge, right? And so is that happening over a, a, a long period of time? I don't know what a long period of time might mean. Is it months that it takes to come to some confident conclusion? Um, well, to get a diagnosis, it's it's not uncommon to wait years to, to get a diagnosis, which is a really big problem. Um, two two plus years to get a diagnosis um, because they'll the children will start slowing in their development first and and 
and it's not uncommon for a child to develop a little bit slower than their peers and, and there's often, you know, they'll catch up. Um, you go to a speech therapist, you go and see an OT um, and, and try to catch up. Or, or they might first get diagnosed with autism or ADHD. Um, and it's not until um, they really start to show much more worrying signs of um, really losing skills rather than slowing in their development that they, um, the alarm bells start going off. With adult dementia, the, and uh, as a layperson, the, the common denominator is age, right? Mm. What's the common denominator in childhood dementia? Um, I guess it's, they're all genetic conditions. Well, in a developed country like Australia, um, they're all genetic, uh, conditions. So that makes it quite different to adult dementia. Um, it's quite predictable that these children will get dementia if they have those particular, um, genetic mutations. So being a, being a genetic, um, often genetic diagnoses, um, does that add to the challenge, I suppose, of genetic testing? It's not a routine, easily accessible um, method of being diagnosed with a condition. So is that one of the layers of complexity is the steps between noticing something is unusual going on with with a child and the actual getting to the genetic testing stage? Yeah, I think um, making genetic testing much more um, accessible would really help to speed up diagnosis. Um, uh, th- like whole genome sequencing, um, you know, if if we could get whole genome so- sequencing as soon as um, a child was showing developmental issues, then you would be able to diagnose these these children much quicker. But um, at the moment, the way that the funding works, you have to be quite um, have quite a lot of red flags and and be much more severely affected before you can access. And there's, and there's long waiting lists as well. Mm-hmm. So I suppose being such a broad range of conditions, um, although m- mainly genetic, that makes it really tricky for um, guiding research for a treatment for some of these conditions. Is, um, do you find that there's an identifiable target that's common to many of the conditions that researchers can, can focus in on or does yeah. it need to be a diagnosis or genetic specific treatment for each of these individual conditions? Uh, There's sort of two ways of going about it. So um, there's very specific um, therapies that are being developed for the particular um, genetic change. So um, gene therapies are showing a lot of promise um, and they're starting to be um, approved and and being made available for a couple of the conditions and there are a lot of clinical trials going on. Um, But then there's also um, research going on to look at the commonalities Mm -hmm. and that's uh, where we see a big advantage of bringing these conditions together is to bring that focus to look at the commonalities. So things like neuroinflammation, um, lysosomal dysfunction and, and, and things like that and and perhaps repurposing drugs that are already out there mm. to address those things to get therapies quickly to these children that might not necessarily be cures, but they might be able to help manage um, the symptoms of the, these diseases. And so where are you at? In terms of therapies, um, where's the latest? Um, I think, I mean, the most promising is is gene therapy, but the challenge is that um, children are often not diagnosed early enough to benefit from those 
um, treatments because once the symptoms start showing, it's often too late for the therapies because the neurodegeneration has already set in and it's really hard to pull that back. So what we really need is uh, newborn screening to identify um, these, these conditions so that we can get therapies to them as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Are some of these conditions included on the current routine Victorian newborn screening um, testing that all, all newborns are offered? Yeah, so some of the conditions that have been on the newborn screening test for the last 20, 30 years, even longer, um, if they were not diagnosed um, at birth and treated, then they would um, result in childhood dementia. Um, but we're not we're not counting them under our current list of conditions because in a country like Australia, they um, generally don't cause dementia, those conditions. And Chris, clearly these are not inherited conditions in the classic way because you know, parents, by definition, can't have them because it's a childhood dementia is the disease. But is there any role for testing the genes of, of parents to see if there's anything that could lead to it, if we can't diagnose newborns, but any propensity within the parents? Yeah, the majority of the conditions are autosomal recessive, recessive conditions. So that means that both parents contain a change in their in their in the same gene and when um, they have children each child has a one in four chance of of having um, childhood dementia Um, so there is a a big role for carrier screening um, to prevent these conditions in the first place. So where do you see that fitting in in terms of population level screening like you know, should every parent be tested um, absolutely you know, that's a simplistic question but yeah how do you see that fitting in absolutely and and Mackenzie's mission um, carrier screening um, pilot study has shown that there is great value in in widespread carrier testing um, they tested um, 10,000 couples in their research project and now they're uh, they've gone to the government to ask for it to be funded so that everyone can access that um, for free. Um, in the meantime, you can access it um, by paying. Um, there are um, private companies or, or through through your doctor, you can get carrier screening to find out your risk and then they, you can take steps to avoid having children with dementia if, if you are found to be high risk. So is that a very specific screen test you'd be asking for, for childhood dementia or is it... Oh no, all, it'll be all... Pa- part of a panel. Panel, of yeah, it'll be yeah. Rare, all rare um, childhood onset um, conditions, so three or four hundred genes. Right, okay. How much do these test costs uh, generally? I'm just trying to get an idea of how accessible it may be. How much do the government may have to spend on a future budget? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so it's um, for... It's best to get a couple done rather than one at a time. Right. So it's about a thousand dollars. Yeah, jeez. But we say don't don't buy a bugaboo pram. Um, pay for <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pay for genetic testing. Especially when you mention you know it's like one was it two thousand five hundred or so. Uh, that, that's not as rare as I would have. Yeah, hundred babies so devastating. Hundred babies every year in Australia. Oh and I imagine that it's something that like I'm currently working in the um, the. Uh, like neonatal space, and a lot of parents don't like thinking about this. They they, they all have a quite a a plan for their child, and it's going to be a nice, you know, happy happy situation where they're going to have this, you know, medically normal baby. But I, th- I guess one of your uh, main goals should be raising awareness for things like carrier screening and their importance. How how is the organisation doing that? Um. 
Well, it's we're working with the other um, researchers, clinicians, um, big projects that are that are really leading that, like like Mackenzie's mission and Australian Genomics. Um, we have the um, uh, Tiffany Bortwood, who's uh, the manager of Australian Genomics, on our board. Um, so we work very closely with them, and we lend our voice to that cause whenever we've, we're given the opportunity, mm. like today. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of our one of our soapboxes we like to get on. Yeah. Um, just going back to some definitional stuff. So childhood, um, I'm, I have a mind's eye concept of that up to sixteen, eighteen, something like that. Mm. What is, is and and then I leap forward in when we're thinking about dementia. I think, excuse me, folks. Um, I'm thinking people who are you know into their maybe as early as fifties, but more likely like seventies, eighties, and so on. What's what do we know? What's happening in between? Is, is there a gap in dementia? Yeah. Well, some of the um, childhood um, dementia conditions can have. Um, onset in early adulthood as well. So there's like a spectrum of severity and they, they might have onset at 10 years of age or they might have onset at 20 years of age. So there, there are other like young adult um, dementia conditions, but I would say um, they're more rare, even more rare than childhood dementia, I would say. Um, just that's my gut feeling. I, I should look that look into that. But um, like the average age of um, diagnosis of childhood dementia is um, around four or five years of age. Um, so there really is a cluster in that early childhood, and even ad- adolescent onset is is quite rare. Right. It either happens seems like it ha- either happens early or or late. Um, but there there will be there will be um, patients in that middle gap as well, but just not very many. Mm. Mm. We're speaking with Dr. Chris Elvidge on Triple R's radiotherapy this morning. Um, Dr. Chris, must be an incredibly um, confronting and isolating experience uh, for a parent to, to receive a diagnosis that falls under the childhood dementia category. Just, um, what does the Childhood Dementia Initiative um, offer in terms of uh, support for these families and um, uh, is there a capacity to unite with other families who are facing a similar challenge? Um, well, we're not at the moment a um, directly uh, offering support to families, but uh, we're working to improve the systems that are already there um, to better uh, support families. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of our early wins has been that adult dementia organisations are now extending their support to families with childhood mm-hmm. dementia, like um, Dementia Support Australia have a great service to help families um, um, and they go out to their homes. Um, and um, we have also have a, a family advocates program that families can join and that's um, they help us in our work but also is a way to connect with other families. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the other complexities of childhood dementia probably compared to adult dementia is that often these kids are quite medically complex with their with the um, the conditions that they're facing, like a lot of the, uh, for example, like the lysosomal or the mucopolysaccharide disorders have quite significant health effects. Um, and, you know, it could be cardiac, it could be um, feeding, it could be respiratory. Is the, are you, as an organisation, are you focusing just on the neurodevelopmental impacts or are you focusing on kind of like a holistic whole body? Um. 
We are focusing on the um, on the cognitive effects mm. and the neurologi- neurological effects, but we always acknowledge that there are a whole host of other mm. issues that these families face, as as you say. Um, yeah, you know, liver, lungs, heart, mm. everything and anything can be affected. And a lot of these disorders also come along with um, significant movement disorders, ataxias, um, epilepsies. Um, so it, it really can be a very, and it is a very devastating diagnosis, any one of these conditions. Truly important area to work in though. Mm. We're running very short on time, unfortunately, this morning. Um, we'll have to wrap up now, but thank you so much, Dr. Chris Elvidge. Uh, Thanks not for o- having not me. Not only for joining us on the show, but for the fantastic work that you yeah. and the team at the Childhood Dementia Initiative are doing for these for these kids that really, really need all the support that they can get. So thank you. Thank you. Um, well, hopefully we will have you on again in the future and hear about some really exciting updates from the work that you're Love doing. That. And, doing. And if people want to get involved or no- donate, where would they find you? Um, go to our website, um, childhooddementia.org, um, and there's heaps more information there about childhood dementia and an, a big button there to donate. Thanks. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr. Josh Ozawiki joins us in the studio. So Josh is a children's infectious disease doctor and a researcher at Melbourne's Murdoch Children's Research Institute. As a clinician, Josh works hard to prevent infections in children and diagnose and treat kids with unusual and severe infections. In, with his research hat on, he does human challenge trials, which are giving healthy adult humans carefully monitored human infections with healthcare support to learn how human diseases work and how to stop them. And if you think Josh's voice sounds familiar this morning, you would be right. You may recognise Josh's voice from previous appearances on Einstein and Gogo and previously on Radiotherapy. Welcome back to Radiotherapy, Josh. Thank you so much, Dr. Dilemma. So as a bit of background into Strep A, um, which is uh, the focus of, of a lot of your research. So Group A Strep, also known as Streptococcus pyogenes or, or Strep A, is a human-specific bacterium that has a huge burden of disease worldwide. It's responsible for a number of presentations and illnesses from more milder uh, illnesses such as strep throat, impetigo, scarlet fever to really severe um, devastating complications such as rheumatic <coughs> fever, rheumatic heart disease, uh, invasive uh, strep um, sepsis um, and these illnesses disproportionately affect really young people, elderly people and um, in Australia our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population and Group A strep is implicated in an estimated half a million deaths annually um, globally. So the need for an effective vaccination is, of course, really clear. And your recent work with MCRI uh, involved deliberately infecting healthy adults, volunteers with strep A, to develop a human model to trial various um, vaccine candidates. Can you tell us what's the update on, on how the research into a strep A vaccination is going? Sure. Uh, thanks, Dr. Dilemma. So, like you said, uh, I think you, you covered you covered it all, really. Uh, <laughs> we know. can go now. Well, thanks for telling us. Beautiful introduction. Thank you. Um, so, uh, so this is a, this is a pathogen that uh, that the world knew about long before it saw it under a microscope. So, uh, you know, it was called scarlet fever, 
long before anyone saw the bacteria. And you know, and one story uh, that that I found during my PhD work was that Charles Darwin's grandfather in seventeen sorry <laughs> grandfather Erasmus in seventeen ninety six. So he sees the smallpox vaccine uh, developed by Edward Jenner around the ti- same time. Um, interestingly, you know, pr- uh, Jenner showed that it worked by deliberately exposing his uh, gardener's son, James Phipps, to smallpox at least 20 times after inoculating, <laughs> hi- after inoculating him with cowpox, which ultimately was the vaccine that er- eradicated smallpox from the planet. Um, so in, in the immediate aftermath of that, Erasmus Darwin says no one could do an act greater for humankind than to inoculate against scarlet fever and get rid of it. You know, this is a pathogen, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is a pathogen that, that um, you know, that exists from the, you know, very, very mild infections all the way through to absolutely catastrophic invasive disease. So that's a very fast problem, a very fast infection that lands patients in ICU very quickly. Um, and, it, you know, and we've seen... Um, uh, we've seen that kind of strep A disease in the headlines over the last two or three months, uh, all around the world actually, and uh, and then the similarly severe syndromes like rheumatic heart disease, so very very slow disease of post-infection. Uh, that's a post-infectious complication where the heart gets damaged, and uh, you then have a non-infectious chronic disease outcome of having a damaged heart, and that's a you know that's the uh, worldwide that's the cause of the most deaths due to due to this bug. There's probably about 42 million people currently living with hearts that are broken uh, as a result of rheumatic heart disease. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a cause of, uh, of needing open heart surgery in your, you know, in your teens, in, your early, in early adulthood, and a really major cause of premature death worldwide. Um, so, you know, big problem, need a vaccine, they wanted a vaccine in 1796, um, and uh, and we still don't have one that's commercially available. In the in the 20s, uh, actually, there are at least kind of a handful of vaccine products that seem to have been quite effective. Vaccines that you know that. Uh, are very different from what we would now consider a vaccine. So I think the whole world now is, you know, has got a sense of vaccine development uh, and uh, and what it takes to get a vaccine over the line. And and what they were doing back then was a, a uh, something where the the quality control, you know, wouldn't meet, you know, wouldn't meet what you're doing in 2023 or 2020. One, as the case may have been, mm. um, but you know, nonetheless, was probably something that was effective and is a really good proof of concept that it's something that we can do again. Um, but when you're talking about a pathogen that causes all sorts of different infections across the entire lifespan, there's this interesting question of how do you run a trial? Where do you go? What's your target for vaccination? You know, is this a product that's you know that's uh, commercially viable? You know, am I is my huge pharmaceutical company going to put you know very large amounts of money behind this product? You know, there's no uh, there's no kind of guaranteed um, you know uh, public insurance scheme in the sense that there was during early COVID nineteen vaccine development, where it was very clear that they'd sold you know billions of doses before they even made them. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, this is a different world. Josh, there's a bit of yeah. a disconnect there. Like on one hand, it causes this enormous burden of disease, and yet on the other hand, you're saying that the commercial viability is not so obvious. What's going on there? Shouldn't the commercial incentive be really Obvious, yeah. So the commercial incentive of a of a vaccine that's kind of guaranteed to be guaranteed to be successful, sure. But the you know, but the um, 
the, uh, the commercial incentive to pursue development of a vaccine. We've already got a relatively you know, busy vaccine schedule. So how do you fit extra products into that vaccine schedule? Do you couple them with existing products? Do you, uh, do you stack it on top? Do you give it to babies, young children? Is it an adult vaccine? Certainly group A strep is you know, one of the most common causes of, of skin infections in older adults. Um, and you know, Ed, probably from a commercial point of view, if you could make a vaccine to prevent cellulitis in older people, that would, that would float the entire business. You, you know, you, mm. wouldn't, you wouldn't need any of it if otherwise. Um, everything else would be a bonus. But it's hard to, you know, it's hard to jump into one of these, uh, you know, one of these new, um, you know, new vaccine projects for, for the companies involved. And that's, you know, that's kind of like it or not. Uh, you know, that's the way that we've, you know, we run the world. We license a handful of very, very large companies to carry vaccines and medicines over the line. And is there anything biologically difficult about making a vaccine against strep A as opposed to other bugs? Yeah, so so I think that, so. The whole world, you know, will have uh, will have a sense of, of what it took to create vaccines against uh, against a virus, and for the most part, viruses are quite simple. Uh, they have one, usually one really big, what we call immunodominant antigen, so something that the immune system sees, uh, and it, and it's usually the same thing that's crucially uh, involved in that virus sticking to a human cell. So in the case of, uh, of SARS-CoV-2, uh, we're talking about, you know, the spike protein, big arm that sticks to a receptor on a human cell. You vaccinate against that big, big spike that docks with the human receptor and you basically stop the, stop the infection. And, um, and, uh, and that was, you know, that was the target of vaccine development. Uh, bacteria uh, are, far more complex. There's a lot more moving pieces. Many of those moving pieces basically look exactly the same as human. Um, so you can't vaccinate against them. Uh, you vaccinate against, uh, there's kind of multiple levels of redundancy. Um, yeah, and, you know, and if I'm talking a little bit like I'm on the bug side, that's, <laughs> that, 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 that's Well, because, you do deliberately infect people. <laughs> so, so every, I, I was going to say that every bacterial and fungal researcher as well um, sounds like this, has a bit of a love-hate relationship with the, the subject of their research of, with the bacteria. Um, and that's very different from how viral researchers work because viral researchers mostly hate their pathogens. <laughs> and that's because viruses are psychopaths. They have no personality and we've experienced this over the last three years. Viruses just relentlessly do their thing. They couldn't care less about us and they just keep on going. And, uh, and it becomes a little bit depressing um, and, uh, until you turn, thing, turn the tables on them. Once you've actually got a vaccine against a virus, you can really begin to control its, its public health impact. But until then, it's, it's tough going. Yeah. And what is it about group A strep that makes it this, like, quite amazing bacteria that can go from just a mild sore throat or asymptomatic to causing devastating cardiac disease, devastating renal disease, you know, invasive disease. What, what is it about uh, group A strep that makes it so... In, like, yeah, so, so it's clearly the key question. There's, a, you know, there's some incredible research happening uh, around the world to, to try and solve some of these mysteries. I suspect some of these mysteries won't be solved by the time that we actually you know, have a successful vaccine. That's certainly the case for a lot of other pathogens where we, you know, they have many mysteries and we've controlled them or, or we have strategies to control them. And so you know, we're talking about lots and lots of moving parts. All of those moving parts are moving in relation to what the human response to them is um, and and, you know, and in an environment, um, and all of those things moving at the same time are probably too many factors for us to easily comprehend. Mm. Um, but uh, but 
you know, it, it's a bit of a trite statement to say that the, you know, the result of any host or human pathogen bacteria encounter, you know, is, uh, is modulated by host factors <laughs> and organism factors and the environment. And that's like saying, you know, is it a genetic condition or an environmental condition? Well, it's both, you mm. know, always. And, uh, and, you know, that's easy for me to say. It's very hard to kind of unwrap that mystery. Um, but in part, one way of unwrapping it is doing these human challenge trials. And that's a, that's a really powerful window into actually picking that interaction. It's not that it's a perfect model, but it's probably a better model than a mouse. Mm. And we have probably 50 mice vaccines that are wonderful at protecting mice from this pathogen that only naturally infects humans. And you can see that you can see the disconnect there. So we have this pile of vaccines shown to be effective at protecting mice against a range of conditions, and we don't have a single licensed group A strep vaccine to save human lives. Mm. Bit of a problem. And I guess on that point, and the kind of the ethics around human um, infection trials, I guess with group A strep, as we know, it can cause invasive disease, it can cause cardiac disease, it can cause renal disease. How do you get healthy volunteers to kind of accept these risks and know, knowing that you know, they might be, become quite desperately unwell? Yeah, so, so, so a lot of people's uh, window on human challenge research is really from early in the pandemic, but this is something that's clearly a very old part of medicine and has had a bit of a renaissance in the last, uh, in the last 10, 15 or so years. And in part because what we've done is we, we do these trials you know, in the way, in the safe and serious way that people do early phase medical research for every, you know, every thing really. And so when you think about an early phase drug trial, a phase one trial, at some point, you know, we do everything we can to understand how something works in a dish, how something works in little animals, and then a group of humans are exposed to it for the first time when you talk about, when you talk about new drugs. Most of those trials, you know, the, while the intent is for them to sit there and for nothing to happen, you know, and, and to get a sense of the safety, most of those trials go like that, and a handful of those trials have not gone like that and have not gone very well. In the case of human challenge trials, we have a much better sense of what's going to happen when we actually expose people to, to pathogens. We work our bums off for years trying to pick exactly the right strain to you know, to make sure that uh, to make sure that that we you know that we uh, can mitigate the risks, uh, and uh, and we do everything we can to pick the right people who are the lowest risk of getting those complications, and to take care of them in the safest possible environment. You know, the, I was uh, on a systematic review of essentially every adverse effect of you know in these trials over the last mm. twenty five or so years. We're talking about more than 10,000 people. You know, twenty three. This is a technical term. Uh, serious adverse events none of you know no deaths mm. no you know severe conditions you know these are these are trials that are as safe as all early phase research so the days are gone where you force your junior doctors into uh ingesting something that they don't know about <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> yeah I, look i i can't can't speak for your medical training but certainly, <laughs> but, but certainly when it comes to human challenge research it's not not the business we're in these yeah. you know these participants uh, absolutely know what they're getting into and not only that we quiz them that they know what they're getting Mm. We've been speaking with Dr. Josh Ozawicki from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute about all things Strep A. Um, we're fast running out of time this morning, but just thinking from a parent's perspective, um, uh, this illness, as, as we've said, can be quite benign or quite uh, devastating. Are there any reliable indicators that suggest early um, early signs of a severe illness that um, you know distinguishing between 
uh, virus, which is obviously super common in the in the winter time, versus the early signs of something more sinister. Well, what do you kind of guide parents to know to look out for? Yeah, so I think the, I think the first thing to say is that you know that most infections with this pathogen, uh, you know, are not going to be severe. In fact, the really severe syndromes are very rare, uh, and those severe syndromes that you're seeing on the paper in the paper, even even when they're more common, they're still very rare. So that's a you know a really important starting point. Um, most of those children don't have uh, things that are recognisable as strep A infections really early. So mm-hmm. these aren't kids who obviously had a sore throat earlier in the week, obviously had a skin infection mm-hmm. earlier in the week. These are often kids who are who are not quite right for a number of days. Often have you know often have bad limb pain, are quite lethargic and not lethargic like we all are on Sunday morning, you know, but, you know, are struggling to stay awake and struggling to get around doing their usual activities. They'll often have a fever. Yeah, they may have a rash. Uh, I, think, uh, I think there's a nice... Um, so Jeremy Carr uh, from Monash Hospital, uh, Monash Children's Hospital, put it really nicely in this morning's newspaper, actually, when oh. he was talking about uh, a range of conditions. And he said, I think, you know, for the most part, we have to trust parents' judgment. Parents have a pretty good sense of when their kids are not quite right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, for the most part, you know, I think, I think it's better than a tick box list is, mm. a, is a sense that, you know, parents... Are, uh, you gut know, feeling. Parents' gut feeling is actually pretty good here. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I don't want everyone racing into Dr. Sharma's GP practice, but, um, you know, tomorrow with their child, who's got a sniffle, but, you know, but if you're, if you think your kid is, you know, well and truly not quite right, you know, you need to get them seen. Trust that instinct. Thank you so much, Dr. Oswicki. It's been really great to have you back in the studio again. Thanks so much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. In the last couple of minutes, we want to go through, oh, I don't know, 44 pages of budget documents and related to health. <laughs> Panelmeter, I believe in you. You've got, I'll count you down if you'd like. God. And all, all the headline items for uh, that, that came up in the house. No, I think the one that we want to talk about, um, obviously, because it's come up on the show um, uh, routinely over the last while, is attention to the plight of uh, GPs and Medicare more generally. So let's go to Dr Sharma. First impressions. Uh, fair bit of money being spent, but the system is in crisis. I know the, the headline's been the, the quote-unquote tripling of the Medicare uh, uh, no, rebate to the uh, the bulk billing incentive, rather, and I think this sounds so great, uh, but there's a bit of nuance to it. Yeah. Uh, the bulk billing incentive is about six bucks at the moment. It's now going to go up by twelve extra dollars if a GP's bulk bill kids under sixteen and those with a healthcare card. So it's uh, it's definitely handy for for clinics to see a high volume of, of bulk billing, but look, it's not really going to be uh, enough to rescue them over the course of you know, a few years, especially with um, with inflation and the way that's working out. And uh, yeah, so I, and really, I think this is just a just a little bit of assistance. While frankly, the whole of medi- um, primary healthcare in this country is about to be transformed in the next five years. So just a just a bit of a carrot before. God Very quickly, what what's this hundred million bucks for GPs to treat frequent hospital users about? I have not looked into this, but a few hundred million. Uh, uh, One hundred million, about ninety-eight point nine million. Yeah, uh, 
with that number alone for the task we're being asked to do, I can almost guarantee it's not going to be quite enough. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah. Um, that'll be spent pretty quickly. Hey, we might come back to all of that stuff in one form or another over mm. the, the shows um, through the rest of the year and see how this unfolds. You know, some people are calling it, you know, the most attention the health health system's got for a long time, um, but that's uh, yet to be seen. I think something striking is that, remember the October mini-budget where there was actually attention put to well-being. It was actually called the well-being budget, and it didn't really seem to come through in this one last mm. Tuesday. But that's our lot for today on Radiotherapy. We've got to get over to the fine folk at Einsteiner Go-Go. It's been myself, uh, panel beater, Dr Sharma, Dr Dilemma and Dr Neo, with big thanks to Dr Christina Elvridge and Dr George Ozawicki, also known as uh, Hawkeye. And if you are celebrating Mother's Day out there, folks, um, I hope you have a lovely one. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.